We started this series through the book of 1 John a, few, a couple weeks ago, and we're going to continue that today. We have a, a theme for the series of 1 John that we're calling For His Glory and For Our Benefit. And as you'll notice through the book of 1 John, and, and really through the entire scriptures, as you'll find both of these, hand in hand, because the Word of God is built that way. Anytime we're drawn to glorify God, we're also drawn to something that is for our benefit. And every time there's something for our benefit... It always glorifies God, and you'll find that today as we speak about the Advocate. That is where we're going today, the Advocate. We're going to be in 1 John 2, if you have your Bibles, and we're going to look at two verses today. 1 John 2, we're going to look at verses 1 to 2, a short but powerful couple verses, and we're going to call the lesson today the Advocate. Before we get there, though, do you have any helpers in your life? Anybody that helps you? Well, a pastor has several helpers. A pastor can't do what he does without helpers, and I have many helpers in this church who help me, and I thank you for those people. Without these people, I couldn't do what I do, and so I, I spend much of my life being assisted by people. So I'm going to thank a few helpers today. I have 10 helpers that I want to thank. Thank, thank you to these things that help me. Number one, breath mints. That's right. Thank you, breath mints, for allowing me to keep my coffee addiction while at the same time convincing my church people that my breath is always a minty paradise. <laughs> thank you, breath mints. I want to say thank you to smartphones. They bring some bad into our life, but they also bring some good. Smartphones, thank you. Thank you for alerting me to potential spammers. Otherwise, I would have 35 car warranties right now. Thank you, smartphone. Joel, you're the only one that got that. Anyone else get those calls for car warranties? Am I the only one? I want to say thank you to extra stretchy jeans, right? Who's thankful for extra stretchy jeans? Thank you for letting me eat carbs without judging me. Extra stretchy jeans, thank you. I want to say thank you to Google safety alerts. Thank you for letting me know that I am stealing my own identity every time I log in from a new device. Thank you, Google. I appreciate that. I want to say thank you to suntan lotion. That's right. Thank you for letting me keep my hard-earned, pasty, winter, tanless glow all summer long. Thank you, suntan lotion. I want to say thank you to storage containers. Thank you, storage container, for letting me keep the 95 items that I'll never use again and charging me $100 a month to do so. Thank you, storage container. I appreciate it. I want to say thank you to check engine lights. Yes, thank you, check engine light. Thank you for alerting me that either my engine is bad, that a hundred other minor issues are bad, or that the check engine light itself is bad. Thank you, check engine light. I appreciate what you do. I want to say thank you to baby bibs. Thank you, baby bibs, for catching the 1% of the food my child spills, drops, throws on purpose, or vomits up for no reason at all. Thank you, baby bibs. That 1% is profound. I want to say thank you to Feels Like Temperatures. Thank you, Feels Like Temperatures. Thank you for letting me know that instead of 63 degrees, it feels like 65 degrees, so I don't wear my moose skin sweater that day. Thank you, Feels Like Temperature. And my last one, I want to thank you to Shower Curtain Liners. Thank you, Shower Curtain Liners. Thank you for offering to dance with me every time I take a shower even though I've repeatedly told you to get lost. 
Uh, we're thanking some helpers today. Now, of course, we need to transition because we're going to th- say thank you to a helper today, and he's a really profound helper. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our advocate, and that's where we're going today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be at 1 John 2, like I said, verses 1 and 2, as we continue progressing our way through the book of 1 John. We're already in chapter 2. That's amazing. And what have I encouraged you to do through the, through the lesson here through 1 John? I've encouraged you to read it. How often? Every, every day, I heard. I encouraged you every week. Someone took it the extra mile there. I encouraged you to read 1 John every single week. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to read through 1 John. There are five chapters. But I believe by continually reading this, this passage of Scripture, we will see the themes pop up. We'll see where John is taking this. We'll see a lot of good things. So I encourage you to read that once a week if you can. If once a day you could pull that off, that's great as well. But please read 1 John every single week if you're able to. Let's read the Word of God together. It's 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2. This is what it says. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. That's our passage today. One, two verses. If you've been with us, these have been our three lessons that we've gone over so far. We looked at number one, verses four to ten of chapter one, the joy of fellowship. Verses five to ten of chapter one, we called God is light, therefore. That was this past week. And today we look at the advocate. We're going to look at Jesus Christ and how he assists us, how he helps us in a very profound way. To start things off, though, let's ask this question today. Where would you be without Jesus? If not for Jesus, where would you be right now? You ever asked yourself that question? Ever thought about that? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I think about that question and I think and I consider where I'd be today without Jesus Christ. And it would be nowhere pretty. I would definitely not be doing such a thing as this. So we have to remember that today as we commune with him, we have to remember that it's Jesus that gets all the credit and all the glory for what we're doing here today. Jesus gets all the credit for our salvation, for our eternal life, for our hope, for our life itself. Everything goes back to Jesus. All roads flow to him and from him. Let's start in verse 1. John says this. He says, my little children. Do you see how affectionate this is? John's an apostle. He's a minister. But just like I have people in my church building, John had people that he was very close to, that he ministered to, that he thought about, that he prayed for. And so the people that he's writing to are very near and dear to his heart. He prayed for these people. He loved these people. And so when he's writing to them, he calls them my little children. It's not a demeaning thing. It's it's a tender thing. It's an affectionate thing. It's kind of like when I get down with my children on eye level and I need to say something important to them and I get down right in their level and speak right to their eye. It's similar to what John is doing here today. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's his goal for the lesson today. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, if you've been a parent or are a parent right now, you understand this concept of what John is saying. Because sometimes our children like to endanger their lives, don't they? By reaching up to touch a hot stove or leaning back in their chair or playing on a set of staircases, our children love to test the hearts of their parents and see how strong they are. John is doing something similar today. He's telling us to stop reaching for the hot stove. 
And he's reminding us of how dangerous sin is. That we must turn away from sin. We have to remember that sin is dangerous. Yes, even for the Christian, sin is dangerous. Sin can harm us. Sin, sin can keep us back from the will of God, from the kingdom of God, from serving others. Sin is very dangerous. And so John starts by saying, little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I found this quote that I think is quite profound. And I don't know exactly who said this, but it says, sin will take you farther than you ever thought you'd go. It will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. Isn't that true about sin? Sin steals from us. It does. It robs joy. It robs happiness. It robs God's glory. And so John is reminding us to not sin. That's what he's saying to us. If you keep reading in 1 John, which I've encouraged you to do already, you'll eventually come to chapter 3, when John will eventually say this to us. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning, and that word practice is important. We'll talk about that eventually. But notice what he says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, is of the devil. Have you thought about that? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Why? Because the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was why? Yes, to save us, to cleanse us. But why else did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. Now, what primarily does he mean? Well, I believe he means two things primarily. Sin and death. The reason the Lord appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Those two big weapons that the devil has and uses all the time, the Lord came to disarm him, to take sin and death away from him. So really the devil's fighting us today, but he, has, he doesn't have his two most powerful tools, sin and death. He was removed. Those are removed from his life, from his hands. And so John has reminded us that we can't continue to practice sin and claim to be of Christ. Because that is what the devil does. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. And we have been set free from sin. And we'll talk about that. If you remember when, when Joseph received the news, Joseph meaning Jesus' father, earthly father, received the news that they were going to have birth to a son. Both Mary and Joseph got these pieces of news separately. And as soon as Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he, he thought that Mary had been unfaithful to him because he knew that he had not had relation with his wife yet. And so he was considering that he should step away from this relationship before they got any deeper into it. And it says, as he considered these things in chapter 1 of Matthew, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This child inside of you is divine. He was sent from heaven, sent from God. Mary has not been unfaithful to you. This child inside of Mary is actually the Messiah, the Christ. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And right here, the angel of the Lord tells us what the name Jesus means. For he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. When you use the term Christian, that's what the term Christian means. Saved from sin. Follower of Jesus. We are following Jesus Christ and the name of Jesus means saved from our sins. Isn't that amazing? And that's a really important foundational thing to understand because John is indicating to us and reminding us today that we don't have to sin. 
We don't have to sin. We've been set free from sin. In fact, we sing about this all the time. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The modern version says this. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Amen? Now, what are we by nature? We all know this by nature. We are sinners by nature. That is true. But when Jesus Christ comes and dies and resurrects and gives us the Holy Spirit and allows us to believe in him, he changes us. And we become different altogether. In fact, the term that you find in the scripture for Christians, for believers, is this word saints. Now, sadly, some denominations have changed that word into what it means. But if you look throughout scripture, saints means Christian. Saint means believer in Jesus. And when we believe in Jesus, he takes those chains of sin and death off us, and we are free to live new once again. Free to live for the reason God created us. And that is to glorify him. That is to love one another. And we need to remember that, that we are not sinners any longer. We are sinners by nature, but we are redeemed. We are brand new. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5 points out. All things have become new for the Christian. We don't have to sin any longer. We have been set free from our sin. Isn't that important to know? That we don't have to sin. We have power over sin. We have chains that have been removed. If you remember, sometimes the apostles were in jail, and, and a couple times they were freed from jail, and the chains actually fell off them. In one instance, the door or the, the, the wall was actually smashed, and they were free to go. And that's a good parallel for what John is describing here, that sin has been taken away from us. The chains have been set free. In John 8, this is the passage of the prostitute, where the prostitute is encountering the Jewish Pharisees, and, and Jesus is there. And in the, in, the, in the day, prostitutes could be stoned for their sin. That's how heinous this crime was. And so this is exactly what's happening in this passage. They're picking up stones to throw at the prostitute for her sins, for her crime. And Jesus says to these people, let you who has no sin pick up the first stone and throw it at the prostitute. And of course, they all dropped their rocks because no one was without sin. So Jesus says in John 8, verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to the woman, well, what woman, where are they? Has nobody condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Because no one's not a sinner. No one has not committed any crime, any sin. And Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you, even though I have no sin. I did not come here to condemn anybody. I've come to save. I've come to set free. I've come to release the bondage of sin and death. And he says this phrase to this prostitute. Go and from now on sin no more. Isn't that an odd phrase to hear? From someone who has lived their whole life as a sinner? For Jesus to pick you up, dust you off, forgive you, cleanse you, and then say this phrase to you, from now on, go and sin no more. Change your habits. Change your practices. Live for something brand new. And he's basically telling the woman, your chains are gone. You've been set free. You do not have to live for the things you used to live for anymore. I have released the bondage of sin upon your life. And you now have an option. Before you didn't. Before we were in Jesus Christ, none of us had any option. We were going to sin. Sin was a part of our nature. We loved it. We desired it. We looked forward to it. And then Jesus Christ came into our soul and he busted those chains off us. And he said to each of us, now go and sin no more. Let us be reminded today that we don't have to sin. We have power over sin. And I, I thought I knew that for most of my life, but I got to mid, my mid-20s. And it's like the Lord taught me that for the first time. 
Because I was basically telling the Lord, Lord, I will serve you. I will do something for you. But you're going to have to take me as I am with my sinful practices and use me that way in spite of all of those things. And that's when the Lord said to me, Todd, do you realize who I am? A, I'm holy. I don't wink at sin. I don't fellowship with darkness. You don't keep your sins and serve me. And second of all, do you understand how powerful I am? I have not come just to cleanse you. I have not come just to forgive you. I've come to set you free from that lifestyle. I've come to set you free from that darkness. You do not have to walk in darkness anymore because the light of the world is with you, Todd. Go and sin no more. And maybe you're confused by that statement because you're thinking, well, I sin all the time. I must not be a Christian, and we will talk about that here in a bit. But we need to just hear it for what it says. We need to hear Jesus' words for what they mean. He says to the woman, go and sin no more. Do you notice she didn't stand up and start arguing Jesus' theology, going, Jesus, that's not possible, according to what I learned in Bible class. No, that's not what she said. She left and she started living new. Because she could, and Jesus commanded her to do so. And this is the term we use in Scripture, John chapter 3 primarily, that brings up this term, born again. Born again. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not just tweaked. Not just modified. Not just learn a few morality things. We have to change you from the inside out. You must be brand new. And that's really what baptism signifies. As we go down in the water and we're dead to our old lifestyle, to our old sin, and we're raised anew in Jesus Christ, raised to walk in new things and to think of new things and to love new things. We're born again, or the term is called regeneration. Regeneration. God actually makes our soul different. To long things we once hated, to hate things we once longed for, And I remember that experience so profoundly in my life when I stood up and said to the devil, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to. The Lord has set me free. The Lord has given me power over you, devil. I can stand up and I can say no. In Romans 6, this beautiful discourse of the gospel that Paul is teaching in Romans 6, he says this, He says to Christians, he's speaking to Christians, of course, the church. He says, do not present your members to sin. Christian, born again, child of God. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. No, on the contrary, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Do you notice that? You have an option. Before, you didn't have an option. You were going to do whatever your flesh told you to do. And now you have an option to say no to sin and unrighteousness and now present yourselves to God as instruments of of righteousness. Excuse me. He says this, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you're under God's grace. Think about that. Sin will have no dominion over you any longer. And if it does, you need to question that. Because once those chains are gone, you have new power, new desires, new knowledge, and you can walk in freedom. And this goes all the way back to what John is telling his readers. Little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In 1 John 3, he says this again, whoever makes a practice of sinning, 
is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I know you know your salvation that way. Not just because you remember a time that you prayed or a time that you sat with your mom and dad and trusted in Jesus Christ. I hope you know your salvation this way, that you're different. You're different than you once were. This is what you used to be, and this is how you are today. And yes, it's a maturation process. Sanctification is progressive. Doesn't mean we're perfect yet. Doesn't mean we're spotless yet. Doesn't mean we're Christ-like yet. We're climbing that mountain by God's grace. But we're different than we used to be. Amen? We used to be this way. We used to walk for these practices and these sins. And now we live for something different. Something that God calls righteousness. We set our aim on the love of God. We set our aim on obedience and Christ-likeness. And it's all because when Jesus Christ came, he took sin and death away from the devil and allowed us to walk free and brand new. And if you're alive today in Jesus Christ, that's your reality. You don't have to sin. And I want you to hear your pastor say that as confidently as I can. You don't have to sin. Don't let the devil bully you into thinking, I still am owned by these things and belonged by these things, and I still must do these things. You don't. That's a lie. That's a lie of the devil. And his only tactic is to lie. Because he doesn't have sin anymore. And he doesn't have death anymore over you. All he has are lies. And if he can convince you that your chains are still on you, guess what you'll do? You'll live for the old practices that you once lived for. But if you remember what Scripture teaches us, that the chains are gone, you've been set free, you will stand up and say to the devil, you don't own me anymore. You're not my father anymore. I don't listen to you anymore. I have a new captain, a new Lord, a new God, and his name is Jesus Christ. You don't have to sin. Now again, we fall into this pattern sometimes of this swinging pendulum, and we talked about that last week, about how sometimes you'll hear one thing in Scripture and, and you'll make it a conclusion or an assumption based on one thing you've heard. So we've talked about that the Christians that who sin like sinners, that's a problem, and John's going to keep bringing that up in 1 John, that that shouldn't be the case. Christians should not be able to sin like sinners. If you're sinning like a sinner, if you're sinning like you used to, there's something wrong because those chains are still upon you, at least mentally they are, if they're not spiritually. So the conclusion you can make as soon as you hear that going, well, if Christians don't sin like sinners, Christians must never sin. Maybe we're spotless. Maybe we're perfect. Maybe we're holy beings. And that's a dangerous trap that we can fall from one cliff to the other cliff. And John's not going to want us to do that either, to say that, well, because we don't sin like we used to, we must be perfect, spotless, blemish-free. And if we ever sin... We should question our salvation. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's going to talk about that in the very next phrase because he says this in verse, still verse 1. He says, if anyone does sin. Do you notice a key word there? Who said it? If. Do you notice that? What does it not say? When. That's important. That is, that's an important little word that John says. He says, if anyone does say sin. And you know what he's saying? You don't have to. You don't have to. You have power over sin. You have knowledge about the righteous things of God. You don't have to sin any longer. If he said when, that would change the game completely. Because we'd go out here, we'd be the exact same people we once were, and then we'd go, when? Thank you, Jesus, for the cleansing you've given me because I'm still doing the same things I used to. And John wants us to break us of that pattern and says, no, if anyone sins because you don't have to 
If you've been set free, glory to God, thanks to Jesus Christ. You can walk new, you can be new, you can love new things. But he wants us to understand this too, that sometimes we slip and fall on the Christian race, don't we? Sometimes it happens. Even experienced hikers out there, do you ever slip and fall on occasion? You do. On occasion, you do, right? Even though you know what you're doing, you've done it several times, you're going hiking, every now and then a pebble trips you up, or you take a look at your cell phone, you lose your track, lose track of what you're doing, and on occasion, we slip and fall. Now, sadly, it's probably more than on occasion, and that's why it's a maturation process. That's why we're growing in sanctification. It's progressive. The more we learn, the more we gain God's grace, the more we realize we can walk different than we were before. But we do slip and fall in the Christian race. And you know what John is not giving us by saying when? He's not giving us a license to slip. He's not giving us a license to fall. He's not saying to you today, listen, no matter what you do from this moment on, it does not matter. That's not what he's saying. Because he says if. And he just reminded us that we've been set free from sin. He says this, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you understand that you don't have to sin, if you understand that your patterns must be different, and if you sin while knowing that, if you sin while following Jesus Christ, is it over? Do I slip once? I fall down the mountain, I'm destroyed, it's over, I lose my salvation? No, none of that is true. But if you sin, we have an advocate. We have a helper, a profound helper in the Christian race. The word advocate means to plead in favor of, to defend by argument before a tribunal, to support or to vindicate. It's really a legal term. The term advocate is a legal term. It's, it's something you would call a lawyer. Now, in our justice system, uh, which they basically tell us is supposed to be this representation of Lady Justice. Lady Justice has a blindfold on, which means she's blind to the person. She's not a respecter of persons. So whether they're rich or poor, powerful or weak, prominent or common, everyone should get the same justice across the board. Now, sadly, that probably doesn't happen. The scales indicate the crime. You put the crime in the scale, we weigh it according to the law, and we figure out if it's a crime or not. And the sword down here indicates the punishment. And that's our justice system. Our justice system is, is really, honestly, based on God's justice system. And one day there's going to be a judgment day. We know that, right? It's really chunky. You guys read that? Oh, my God, just got so big all of a sudden. There's a judgment day coming. And the judgment day is for every single person. We're all going to stand before Jesus Christ one day and be judged. We are. And on that day, guess what we're going to need? We're going to need an advocate. And really, it's a fancy term for a lawyer. It's someone who argues your case. And only in this sense, it's not before a judge on earth. It's before the judge in heaven. And the judge in heaven is God himself, of course. And on that day, that's going to be a very terrifying day if we don't have an advocate, if we don't have somebody pleading our case. Now, on a typical court scene, you have a lawyer who takes the facts of the case and works them at an angle to show the judge and the jury that you're, you're not guilty based on reasonable doubt based on how we look at the evidence this way and the prosecutor says, no, I look at the evidence this way and they try to convince 12 jurors that you're either innocent or guilty. But in this sense, Jesus Christ is going to plead on a much different basis. 
He's going to tell the judge, they are guilty. They're definitely guilty. Every single one of them have committed crimes against you. Crimes of treason. Crimes punishable of death. But you know what he's also going to say? I've paid for them. All of them. They are guilty, Father. They are. But every single one of them, of my people, have the blood of Jesus upon their account. And we just celebrated here in communion. And therefore, their sins are atoned for. Their sins are paid for. Their sins have been removed. And that's how God is able to keep his justice because he does not take our sins and sweep them under the rug. He does not put them into a closet and not look at them anymore. That's not what a holy God does with sin. What does a holy God do with sin? He destroys it. Because God is light and he has no fellowship with darkness. So as soon as sin comes into his courtroom, he has to judge it. And so Jesus pleads our case before the judge, but he doesn't plead that we're not guilty. Of course we're guilty. He pleads the case that our sins have been paid for by his blood. And I understand that this song, Thank You Jesus for the Blood, was Pastor Mark's favorite. Is that true? It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song because it basically brings out that point. Without the blood of Jesus, I have nothing to stand upon. Nothing. I am guilty. I have committed crimes. I have committed treason against a holy God. And without the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm doomed on judgment day. But according to what 1 John is teaching us, we have an advocate. And he's righteous. And he's perfect. And he's spotless. And he doesn't just go in and say, God, I know they're guilty. Just, let's just act like they aren't. Let's just wink at it. Let's just look past it. Let's just... Do nothing about their crimes, nothing about their sin. That's not what Jesus does because God is holy, holy, holy. And in his courts will only be those who are holy. Jesus Christ will say to them, I have made them holy. My sin or their sin has been paid for by my blood and therefore they're not guilty anymore because I stood on the cross. I hung on the cross for their sins, every single one of them. And therefore they are cleansed, they are healed, they are new. And really this concept is the idea of vouching. You ever get a gift voucher from somebody? You ever get a gift voucher? Well, in this sense, this is what this voucher would look like. Okay, let's say Jesus is going to vouch for us as our advocate. We're going to put our name there, crossroads. Or put your name there specifically. It's two crossroads. It's from Jesus. It's for our salvation. And how long is it? Forever. Because of the advocate. Because of his blood is that precious. His blood is that profound. His blood is that sufficient that it covers the sins of all mankind for all time. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. And he's going to go into that courtroom one day and say, they're cleansed, they're healed, they're new, they're mine. And they're holy. And I've made them that way by my own blood. Let's go to verse 2 because he's going to continue this theme, only say it in a different way. He says, he, he's referring to Jesus Christ still, is the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a little bit of a big word. Advocate is too, but that's a word that's probably a little bit beyond that. He says, this Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you notice how sufficient Jesus is? This is a lesson we had just a little while ago, a few weeks ago. 
The word sufficient means enough. Enough. Jesus Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is enough payment to cover the sins of the entire world. Now, will it cover the sins of the entire world? No, probably not, because many people will reject Jesus Christ and will remain in their sins. But that doesn't change the sufficiency of it. Jesus Christ's one sacrifice is sufficient, is a propitiation for the sins of the entire world, and for our sins specifically. And the word propitiation really means this word atonement. It's the idea of payment. It's the idea that we're in debt. Excuse me there. We're in debt before God. And we're in debt because of sin. You ever been in debt? I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands, of course. But this is what debt feels like. It feels like a chain around your ankle. It feels like you're covered and buried in something. And we were. We were. Whether we admit it or not, we were all in debt to God because of our sin. And because God is holy, someone had to pay for that. And there were two options. We could pay for it forever, in eternity, in hell. Or Jesus Christ could pay for it. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God could pay for our sins. And his one sacrifice would take care of the sinful debt of all of humanity for all time. Because that's how powerful, that's how profound, that's how precious the blood of the Son of God is. And by believing in Jesus Christ, all of that debt is gone and paid for in a moment. Not swept under the rug because that would mean God is unholy. God is winking at sin. God is fellowshipping with darkness and he won't. He can't. But he did judge sin. He did pay. Sin was paid for. And where was it paid for? On the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so not only is he our advocate, but he's also the Lamb of God. In Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, the writer of Hebrews is basically showing the difference, the contrast between the Old Testament way and the New Testament way. And he says, in the old system, the former priests were many. And the reason they were many, the reason there were so many of these guys is because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. I mean, that's a very logical thing to understand, right? The priests kept dying. So every time a priest died, you had to replace it with a new priest. And the new priest had to pick up the torch and carry this torch and continue atoning for the sins of the people. He'd go into the Holy of Holies. He'd sprinkle the bloods for the sins of all the Jewish people. And every year, this would have to happen over and over, priest after priest after priest. But in verse 24, it says, But he, our Lord Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Amen? What happened when Jesus died? Three days later, he rose again. Where is Jesus today? He's alive in heaven on his throne. And therefore, there's one priest now. One priest. And he holds his position forever. And he therefore atones for our sins for all time. The writer continues saying, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Man, isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? He's able to save to the uttermost. Not barely save. Not kind of save. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for his people, to be our advocate, to be our propitiation. He is not only arguing our case, 
but he died for us. And this Lamb of God was the spotless Lamb of God. Holy, blemish-free, not one sin, not one selfish thought, not one time did he slip on his way up the mountain. And he did so that he could go on that cross and die for our sins, and all of our sin for all time would be paid for. That's what it means to have atonement. God judged Jesus instead of us. God punished Jesus instead of us. And when that blood flowed, it was pure, righteous, spotless blood, and it covered our sins for all time. So not only is he the advocate, but he's the spotless lamb of God. And one day those wounds, I believe, will remain. I believe the scars of those wounds will remain for all time because they're glorified now in heaven. And those wounds are our salvation. Those wounds are our propitiation, our atonement, those very wounds that Jesus received on the cross, that very blood that he spilled, is the reason we can stand before God one day on judgment day and not shrink back in shame, not cower in fear. Of course, we have no leg to stand upon on our own, but we have the advocate, and we have the propitiation, and we have the blood, precious blood of Jesus that covers our sin for all time. Amen. One of the most powerful gospel verses is found in 2 Corinthians 5, and we read it during our scripture reading. Paul says this, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. To become sin. Who never knew sin. Not once, never knew what it was like to break the commandment of God. Never once knew what it was like to act selfishly. Never once had a lustful thought. Never once acted out of wrong anger. Never once hurt his brother or sister in Christ. Never once fellowshiped with sin. But on that cross, he became sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the transaction? Jesus became sin, and we became righteous. And that's what it means to have an advocate. That's what it means to have a propitiation. That's what it means to have atonement. That's what it means to have an intercessor, someone who could say to God on judgment day, I have healed them. I have cleansed them. They are holy. They are spotless. They are righteous, all because I paid for their sins. And the phrase that Jesus said on the cross when he was dying, right before he gave up his spirit, is this. It's finished. It basically means this. Paid in full. Now some, imagine if someone paid your debt and they paid 80% of it. That would be amazing, right? You have 20% debt. The problem with debt is if you're not out of it entirely, you can keep building that debt and keep staying in that hole. But what if someone pays it in full? You're out of the hole entirely. Jesus paid our debt in full. And not only did he do that, but he saved us from that sin. He made us new creatures. He regenerated us. He gave us new birth. He set us on our feet. And he set the light before us and said, follow the light. So if, we, if we're reading this today going, well, maybe the best thing to do is to stay who we are. I mean, if Jesus' sufficient, our sacrifice is so sufficient, maybe the best thing to do is see how many sins we can acquire so that Jesus can cover those sins. That's a silly thought. And the writer of Romans says, no, that's, that's ridiculous. What shall we say then? Are we continuing sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You can't. That thing that put Jesus on the cross must become your enemy. Once you understand what he's done for you, once you understand that you're alive today because of his sacrifice, you now declare war on sin. You hate it. You hate it with every fiber of your being because it's the very reason Jesus died. You don't wink at sin. God doesn't wink at sin. You now declare war on sin. And for the rest of your life, you're going to be warring with the enemy against this temptation to sin. So he says in verse 2, he's the propitiation for our sins, but not, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Our Lord Jesus Christ is perfectly, entirely sufficient. We don't need to look to anyone else. We don't need a supplement. Jesus Christ alone can atone for your sins. You don't have to go and make penance. You don't have to do all these religious works to make yourself holy and acceptable in God's eyes. You simply believe in the sufficient Lamb of God. He becomes your advocate. He is your propitiation. He is your intercessor. He atones for your sin, and you are righteous in the eyes of God forevermore. As long as you believe, as long as you follow Jesus, your sins are wiped clean. In Isaiah 53, we read this already as part of communion, but listen to the language again. He was pierced. For who? Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? For who? For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Where would we be without Jesus today? Where would we be without an advocate on judgment day? Where would we be without a propitiation and atonement? Where would we be if we were still locked in our chain of sin and death? No, we're pretty. We have no hope in this world. How does having the advocate help us? Because I believe it should help us profoundly to know that, to understand that. There are three things that I believe this should draw out of our lives. Number one, how does having the advocate help us? Number one, it's motivation to not sin. To declare war on sin. To act as if sin now is our mortal enemy. Because it was God's mortal enemy. It still is God's mortal enemy. God will destroy the works of the devil. He already has. He will again. And it should be our motivation that once we have this advocate, once we believe in Jesus Christ, it is motivation to go the right way. To listen to God's commandments. And that's the very next thing John is going to say. If you read 1 John 2, verses 3, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. That's how we know. We've set, been set on an entirely new course, a new path, one that is full of light, one that Jesus himself paved for us. And having the advocate should remind us that we don't have to sin. It's motivation to not sin, to not hurt our Lord any longer. Because sin not only hurts us, but it hurts the heart of God. And once you understand that uh, the damage of sin, you war against it for the rest of your life. Number two, what does having an advocate help us do? It's motivation to get back up and continue following Jesus if we do sin. So we'll slip and fall along the way. Sadly, it's happened. It's happened this past week. It could happen today. What happens when you slip and fall on a journey that you have to complete? You get back up. And according to 1 John, he's going to tell us if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, Christian, along the path, when you slip, if you slip along the way, get back up. Confess your sins before God and keep 
soldiering on down the field in the name of following Jesus. And that's our motivation from our advocate, to get back up. Don't lay down, don't look back, don't go backwards, don't think about your past lifestyle. Get up, confess your sins, and go forward following your advocate. Our final motivation that we receive from having an advocate is motivation to love our advocate with our entire lives. Why are we doing this today? Why are we doing this today? Most of us are saved. Most of us understand that we need an advocate. Most of us understand that we need a savior. Why are we here today? What are we doing here today? Well, we're striving to love Jesus more. We want to become what we're not yet. We want to become more holy, more Christ-like, more useful for the kingdom of God. And that's what the word of God helps us do. We understand these things and go, wow, Jesus loves me that much. I want to love him as well. One of my favorite passages of scripture that I memorized comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. Listen to what it says. Notice the language. For the love of, life, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us or constrains us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all Therefore, we've all died according to his death on the cross. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. No, that would be silly. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Why are we here? We're here for Jesus. Why do we live? We live for Jesus. Why do we breathe? We breathe for Jesus. Why do we learn? We learn for Jesus. Why do we commune? We commune for Jesus. Why do we do what we do in this Christian life? It's all for our advocate who died for us and rose again so that he could receive glory and honor and praise and delight from our lives. It's that simple. That's why we're Christians. Not because we're trying to earn favor with God. We have favor with God because of Jesus. We have our case being argued right now by the advocate in the throne room of God. We're not here seeking to get saved by our own duties. We're here seeking to please our advocate because he died for us. And because we love him and because he loves us. And that's really the concept of marriage. He invites us into this covenant where he says, I will love you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and I want the same from you. I want you to stand with me, I want you to be loyal to me, I want you to serve me until the end. And we say to him, yes, I will. I'll need help. I'll need a tremendous amount of help up that mountain by your grace. But Lord, my greatest delight is to love you also. Because you died for me. Because you love me. And that's what a covenant looks like. When two people say, I will love you, and the other says, I will love you also. But it will be hard. Yes, it will be hard. There will be slips and falls. Yes, there will. There will be riches. There will be poverty. There will be sickness. There will be death. But one thing will remain constant. You will love me, and I will love you. We received an abundance of love. Abundance of love from Jesus Christ. And now he's asking us for us to give him similar love that he gave to us. Every single one of these lessons, we're talking about this theme that we have through the book of 1 John. And we're calling it for his glory and for our benefit. And in every single passage, you'll find something that checks off both of those. And here's the one we want to end on today. Jesus' payment enables us to live for the purpose God created us. What is that purpose? God's glory. Why were we created? God's glory. Why do we live today? Why did we wake up today? God's glory. And what enables us to live that way? What makes that possible? The payment of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our advocate, our propitiation, our atonement, 
makes it possible for you and I to say no to sin and to live for the glory of God because that is the greatest purpose of all time. And I hope that's your purpose. And I hope that's Crossroads' purpose, to come together and to serve our great God, our great creator. And it's all made possible because Jesus paid it all. What's the end of that phrase? All to him I owe. It's that simple. You could sum up the entire Christian life with one phrase. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And it's all because of the advocate. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this lesson. Two powerful verses that we seemingly could have rolled by very quickly. And I'm thankful that you stopped us and let us linger on these thoughts today. Help us to understand how powerful, profound this advocate is. That he would argue our case before the righteous, holy God. And claim that we are spotless and cleansed and healed and saved forevermore because of his sacrifice. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Because without Jesus, we have no leg to stand upon. And with Jesus, we can conquer the enemy of darkness. We can conquer sin. We can laugh at death. And Father, we could serve and advance the kingdom of God. And all of that should be impossible for us without Jesus. Help us to be reminded today to serve and love our advocate well because he loves us so well. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand?